You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. this evening to welcome you to our Writers Live series. This evening we're going to have a conversation with Darnell Moore and Hashim Pipkin. Hashim is a content strategist and educator. He has led communications and engagement strategy for DC government and United Negro College Fund and several startups in Silicon Valley. He is also a researcher who is interested in the interplay between sexual politics and social ethics in black culture and the theological slippages in American political discourse. His writings have been featured in Mick, HuffPost, The Feminist Wire, and Ebony. He began his career as an elementary reading teacher He is an honors graduate of Georgetown University and Vanderbilt University and recipient of the Robert W. Woodruff Fellowship at Emory University. He is at work on his first collection of essays, Surely Free, Courage, and Black Love. So our guest speaker this evening, Darnell Moore, is an editor-at-large at Cassius Urban One, a columnist at LogoTV.com and NewNextNow.com, and a contributor at MIC, where he hosted their widely viewed digital series, The Movement. He writes regularly for Ebony Advocate, Vice, and Guardian. Moore was one of the original Black Lives Matter organizers, organizing bus trips from New York to Ferguson after the murder of Michael Brown. Moore is a writer in residence at the Center of African American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice at Columbia University. He has taught at NYU, Rutgers, Fordham, and Vassar, and was trained at Princeton Theological Seminary. In 2016, he was named one of the Root 100, and in 2015, he was named one of Ebony Magazine's Power 100 and Planned Parenthood's 99 Dream Keepers. He divides his time between Brooklyn and Atlanta. Please join me in welcoming Hashim Pipkin and Darnell Moore to the Pratt Library. Hi, everybody. Um, Thank you so much for, I hate hearing my bio read. It's, It's kind of embarrassing. Um, but thank you so much for having us in this beautiful library. I walked in and I was like taken aback. One of the most gorgeous libraries I've been in. So Baltimore, y'all got it going on. I also been enjoying the downtown too, y'all. I almost was late coming back because I was enjoying it too much. Can I invite anybody? If you want to uh, move further up, and please feel free. Um, this is this feels very intimate, which feels very nice. Um, I'm really honored to be in conversation with Hashim. Uh, Hashim is from Baltimore is one of the brightest people I know, who I learn a lot from. 
He's also been a person who has made my words better. Um, he's worked on the other side as an editor. We write a lot together and was part of a collaborative called Brothers Writing to Live. Um, so Hashim represents Baltimore well in the world. So I'm so glad. I was like, I need somebody from Baltimore to be in conversation with. I'm so glad you were able to be here. Absolutely. I'm, um, can you all hear me fine? I'm super excited. I actually, um, as Darnell said, is from, I'm from Baltimore. Spent many um, kind of hot summer days with my mom, who's a Baltimore City teacher in this library for summer reading programs. She was a reading teacher, so I know a lot of the books here. Um, and it's beautiful to come back home um, and experience it with a really dynamic individual who I'm happy to call a friend, a brother. Um, he, you saw his bio, you heard his bio, so I don't need to reiterate him. He's pretty phenomenal. Um, and we're really delighted then to see his newest project, No Ashes in the Fire, dive deep into it and um, really allow you all to engage with the text, engage with the material and kind of the really exciting content and questions that it raises for um, us, people who are kind of committed to living free um, and seeing what love can do in the process. So let's jump right in. The title. Darnell, um, very provocative, uh, no ashes in the fire. Um, a lot of imagery comes to mind when you think of ashes, um, when you think of fire, how fire plays with, say, culture and black, um, black life. Talk to us a bit about the genesis of the title. Sure. So um, the story, chapter three, centers on a moment in my life at the age of 14. I'll give you some context. I grew up in Camden, New Jersey, not too far from here. Um, and I was picked on a lot as a kid. I was just an awkward, I, I should show you, I mean, I think there's pictures in here. But I was an awkward looking somebody, like, you know, a little black boy with big head and big glasses who... Yeah, lanky. <laughs> that... Um, I used to wear church clothes, that's what we called it where I live, like shoes and, and um, like dress socks. Um, and I hung out with the girls in my neighborhood. That's who I felt most comfortable hanging out with. And I, my family is mostly women and girls. And I just was not like the other boys. Far before I identified myself as gay, I didn't think I was gay, I didn't know that was a thing. At, um, at, at around 13 or 14, people would respond to me because of the, the way I acted. You know, like if I wasn't walking with a little bop, if I wasn't playing on a basketball court or playing football. First of all, I can't see. That's number one. Like I wear glasses and I would get hit in the head with the ball. So I'm like, y'all not messing up my face. <laughs> um, but number two is just not what I loved. You know, I love to dance. I love to sing. And that's the things that I love to do. And those are the things that boys in my hood was picked on. Um, for loving, which is an interesting dynamic. Anyway, some of my neighborhood friends would um, pick on me a lot. And one day when I was coming home from a store, four of them surrounded me uh, when I was close to my grandmother's house. And, um, you know, they, they, they jumped me. But this time, one of them was carrying a, ga a, ca a, ga um, a gallon of gasoline. It was a milk container, a plastic one that he had filled with gasoline and emptied it on my body. And um, I just remember watching him do this. I know him well. We went to school together. He lived on a block away from me. And he took out a lighter and tried to light a match. And so I'm 14. He had to be around 15 or so. But it was a windy day, um, surprisingly. And the wind kept knocking the fire out. 
Now, back in the day, I told you I wore church clothes. I was churchy. I'm talking about apostolic Pentecostal churchy. So all I kept thinking was this was nothing but God. Um, God's doing. God's doing at my aunt, my aunt Barbara. I come from a hood family, so, you know, she came outside. I'm not going to tell you all what she did, but let's just say they, the boys got off me. So this is a reference to a moment where there could have been a fire that consumed me that day. There could have been ashes in the fire because my body and my body and spirit literally could have been set ablaze. But there was an intervention, call it God, call it spirit, call it luck, that prevented that from happening. So this is a reference. There is no ashes in the fire. I made it out of that alive, but it's really a reference about black life. How many of y'all know like America is also a fire, isn't it? How many of us know, and see, I get, you can tell I change in seminary. It's coming out, the preacher in me. But I was in a conversation with a minister last week who was like, you know, I kept thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew boys in a fire, right? Black folk in the context of the American um, empire, under, race, under white racial supremacy and anti-blackness, under the heavy hand of, of global capitalism and so much else, have all, we, we exist in fires, but we found a way to sort of create livable lives even in the midst of that. We are able to create family, to love, to experience joy and intimacy even in the midst of that. So it's a nod to that moment in my, in my little 14-year-old life, but it's also my way of celebrating blackness and black people. Um, and as much as it is, you know, and as much as we are somehow finding ourselves in fires all the time, there is a way that we learn to survive, don't we? Um, and it's my nod to that. Thank you. Um, do you mind taking us to that section? Sure. Oh, he's going to make me read from it. Thank you, Hashim. You can tell that Hashim trained as an educator. Um, sure. So this is from the chapter called Magic. I expected banter. I wasn't prepared for a beating. Fuji, OB, Mark, and another boy whose name I did not know were hanging out on my next-door neighbor at Mark's porch, watching me as I walked home from the corner store with my grandma's deli regimen of 50 peppermints and a courier post. My mother, my three sisters, and I had moved into our grandparents' home in the Whitman Park section of Camden in 1990. We had to relocate because our home five minutes away had been destroyed by my mom's boyfriend, Charles. My grandparents lived on a densely populated street full of small, differently colored, and attached row homes, Some of the homes were boarded up and abandoned. A few were well manicured, and others had been knocked down, leaving behind vacant lots. A few of the corners in our neighborhood were populated with black boys and some girls who found community where police found reason to stop and frisk us. Others sold drugs and were gang members. I was excited about the move and wasn't bothered that every night my mom and I slept on the two couches opposite one another in the living room of the packed family house. I would close my eyes knowing my mom was safe. I'm going to skip it down a bit. Our street was usually tranquil in the late spring, especially after school. The hot sunlight would shimmer on the tiny glass shards left from broken bottles on a cement sidewalk. The neighborhood kids would be inside acting as if we were doing homework or playing games on our Nintendos, our Sega systems, while our caregivers made their way back to homes full of people, problems, love, and concern. Even the fearless street pigeons, fiercer than any stray dog that chased passerby for fun, seemed to be reserved that day. Why are you such a fucking faggot? OB, the oldest, 
and toughest of the crew asked as he uncoiled the plastic cap covering the milk jug he held in his hand. The boys walked around me and surrounded me before I was able to make it home. Obi's taunts were routine. By 14, I had perfected the art of indifference. Slurs like gay and pussy would be met with a giggle and smirk as if they did not cut. My smile was fraudulent. I held back tears and swallowed the stinging embarrassment. Faggot. My heart started racing. I was standing a few feet away from my grandparents' house, but the boys were blocking my movement on the sidewalk. The uncovered milk carton was nearly full, but I realized it didn't contain milk. I could smell gasoline, and I wondered if it had come from the small moped, small yellow moped my uncle had given me. My bike had been stolen several days before. The roaming circulating on the block was that OB had taken it. I was actually relieved when it disappeared because I was too scared to take it for a ride. You scared pussy, what you gonna do, OB asked. I didn't have a response. I never did when he or anyone else hurled insults. This time, however, I sensed Obi wanted to do more than taunt me. Obi started pouring a gasoline on me, but before he could finish, I pushed him away. I was thin and lacked definition. Obi was fit. I only shoved him to keep him from hurting me. I was too frightened and caged in by their bodies to inflict harm. Obi was pissed. Within seconds, he emptied the gasoline on my head. The liquid covered my body. I could barely see. My eyes were glazed and throbbing. The pungent smell of fuel, which belonged in a moped tank and not a child's mouth, heightened my senses. The block was eerily silent. The wind seemed to have stopped whistling. The cars blazing loud rap songs on woofer's speakers seemed to disappear. I was dazed. I felt hands, many hands violently hammering hammering my body. I caught a few glimpses of OB as he attempted to strike the match. It flickered several times. However, the wind instinctively seemed to put out each flame, and he grew angrier. His handsome caramel brown face lost its look of youthful innocence. His forehead was furrowed and his eyes were slightly squinted. He looked disappointed. He seemed defeated because he could not light the match. He was unable to watch me burn. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So let's take a step back. Um, So this book, one of the major themes in it is really about the memory act of remembering and you know when we think about a a moment in your life that's so charged like that and so loaded with kind of emotion and kind of affect talk us talk to us a bit about that process of recuperating memories that you might have tried to suppress or that you didn't want to necessarily return to um what was that like yeah so you know writing a memoir is so it's a constant return to um memory some of them are good some of them are not um, not just for me, but for anyone who also is included in the story, like including my mother. I talk a lot about the um, domestic abuse, intimate partner violence that my mom faced. And just as an, as an example of what it means to return to memory, my mom said to me when she was reading the, when she was reading the manuscript, um, she said, I'm reading this very, very slowly. <laughs> um, she was going to discover a lot about her son, you know, my sexual exploits and so many other things. I was like, Mom, just prepare yourself because it's, it's going to get real deep real quick. Just love me when you're done. But what she said is that as she read, she forgot so much of the violences that she had endured because that's what trauma does, right? It blocks, we, it, we sort of develop mechanisms where we learn to block out all of the bad, but how returning to it healed her. So for me, I was actually healed by the end of the book. Partly because I come from the type of family where we went through shit, and you would know people were going through shit. Nobody ever talked about it. 
there was no uh, push for any of us to see therapists, even when we probably needed it. Um, the heaviness that was in our homes. I'm like, how can you watch people almost killed by, by partners? How can you be out here on the streets um, with all types of things happening, right? Suffering by the hands of the state and, and, and are in your home. And nobody ever say, we hurt. So what this book allowed me to do is, is to, to sort of open the doors um, and to be vulnerable and to say, hell no to shame. Like, we don't have to be shamed about our past. We don't have to hold all of this in. And as a, um, one thing I learned, my sister, as she read this, she cried a lot um, and just said, but I just didn't know you were going through this. But what she did say to me is reading this had also helped her to find her voice and help her to look back in her life and to confront things that she refused to share because of the pain that it came with it. So I, um, what, what does feel weird is the constant return to it um, and the way that some of these stories can be spectacularized. You know, like some people, that's all they want to talk about is like the hard stuff. Um, but I'm like, you can just read it. It's in the book. I don't have to repeat it to you, you know? Um, yeah, so, yeah, secrets die a hard death, right? You know, and I think a lot has been written about how there's this tension, this duality between the private life, the public life, kind of, you know, at large, but especially in black kind of families, this um, instinct to suppress. Um, but I think what your book does is really throw it to relieve the importance of naming things, right? Naming that. As simple as I was hurt, that hurt me. Um, and I think what that, you know, kind of signals to the reader is kind of the agency we all have. Mm. See, when we return to the memory to be okay, just kind of sitting with it and calling it for what it is. Yeah. Um, so were there moments kind of like in the development of the text? Not necessarily the actual editing and the iterations back and forth between your um, your editor, but just returning to the archives around Camden or sitting and talking with your mom or, you know, your sister, where you were able to gain new insights. Yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. Um, so the hardest part of the book for me to write was the parts about my father. My father passed when I was writing this book. He was 55. That's very young. Um, and the reason why it was difficult and which ended up being a healing moment is because I, when I had started writing an iteration of this book some years ago, I had a different relationship to him. I, I really would, to be very honest, I had a strong dislike of him. I'm going to use that term instead of, I would say hate when I was younger. Um, but it's only because I loved him so hard for most of my life um, until I, I didn't feel like I loved him. So what's interesting about it is when I was writing this, um, I had gotten a call that he um, was hospitalized. Um, and I rushed home from Miami to go see him. And he was on his deathbed, pretty much. And um, in that moment, we, I, I took my sisters and we surrounded him. It's four of us. I'm the oldest. And you know how it is. Like, there's just all this patriarchal ideas about what it means to be the only son of a dad. And I would tell people, like, I don't know what y'all going, I don't know what I'm going to say when you ask me to speak at this man's funeral. I ain't going to be nothing nice. <laughs> so don't ask me to say shit, because I ain't going to be nice. Like, what the hell you want me to say? You better ask someone, you know. So for, for years, I would fret that I would be, have to be put in a position to get up and to speak about a man that I would need to be very honest about. On his deathbed, we stood around him, and I said to him, and I wrote this in the book, um, I know that you are heavy, 
he was unconscious at this point. Um, and I know that you're heavy, you know, because of the guilt and the things you did not get to say to us, like, sorry. But I want you to let it go and fly. And he passed at that moment. Um, part of that healing in that for me was um, it was an opportunity for me to forgive him and for me to, to think about him differently. Had he not died, I would have wrote him differently. He would have been a different character in this book, solely an antagonist. But in this book, I struggled to write about a boy. He had me at 15 years old. And you know it did not dawn upon me that he was a boy, 15-year-old black boy in Camden, until I was writing this until after he passed. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm old as hell. I can barely take care of myself. How was he, 15 years old, only completing eighth grade? Who taught him what he knew about black boyhood and manhood? How was he going to raise a child? And it allowed me to forgive him. And that released so much. I, I, I really know like, a lot of my intimate relationships, a lot of the, the depression I, I had struggled with, a lot of the weight I carried and unhappiness had to do with all that I held on with regards to him. But my mama is the reason. My mama had me at 16, and she has a long relationship, friendship with him. I said to her, you ain't hate that man? And this is before he passed, and she said no, because I got to see the boy who became a man who did some bad things. I didn't mean he was a bad person. At some point, she said he was the hero in her life who also protected her. So those, that was one of the most profound moments of healing that I experienced. I came out of the uh, writing process feeling like, I had gone through years of necessary therapy um, simply because I learned to look at him and see him as a full human being, which allowed me also to see myself as one, too. And, and I should say, like, for anyone that reads this book, for me to dedicate this book to my dad, y'all know that had to be an act of grace in the spirit because <laughs> I had to have suffer a healing, you know, um, a healing moment because this book so much is really an homage to him, too. Yeah. And an homage to, I think, another theme in the book, which is this recurring negotiation of black masculinity, right? You identify as a black man, a queer black man. And when the moments where your dad shows up in the text, I think they're so poignant because you really bring to the fore how difficult it was for him, I think, to emote and still, um, however, live within the confines of, you know, the scripts of normalized masculinity or what patriarchy is asking him to do. And there's a beautiful moment in the text where um, your boy in the bathtub. And um, for me, it really showed, and there's an interesting connection to the idea of flight and kind of what um, water asks of memory, how kind of memories travel through water. Mm. And when you go to an ocean or a pond, it's kind of this, challenge to reflect for some reason and that come that brings to mind in that moment in the tub with your dad could you talk a bit about yeah that? i mean i could read it too um yes hashim is real smart <laughs> baltimore should be very proud polly <laughs> there were many nights i tried to skip bath time during my childhood even if my seven-year-old body smelt like outside, as my mom would say, I would leap into my bed without worry, smelling like a mix of grass, hot air, sweat, grime, and good times. The bathtub in our small two-bedroom apartment felt too confining, 
and the way the water became sludge after I washed away the residue on my body left from hours of play repulsed me. I would move to the farthest end of any corner in the tub to avoid being touched by the once fresh water made dirty after washing. At some point, though, my dad had decided he had had enough of my resistance. My dad loved the water. He swam with the grace of a bottlenose dolphin. When he went fishing, there was something about him that seemed to attract fish every time he released his pole. His brothers and sisters would tell me later that water was the element in which my father felt most disarmed and whole. One evening after dinner, my father called me into the bathroom. As I walked closer, I could hear the water hitting the bathtub floor with force. The door was slightly ajar as she stood in in the tub lathering a washcloth with ivory soap. Open the door. What are you standing there for? He he asked. I walked into the bedroom with as much bathroom with as much annoyance as I did whenever I needed to wash. I'm about to teach you how to wash yourself properly. You can't be walking around here stinking. You're getting older and your body is changing. He said, and he prepared the wash rag and soap, as if he were about to teach a, to begin a legitimate class on proper cleanliness. I stepped cautiously into the steamy bath water. It was the first time I stood in the presence of my father when he was naked which actually made me forget about how much I hated washing. It was mystifying to stand in the bathtub bare before the man who often veiled his deepest emotions and used the force of his physical power to dominate the spaces he moved through. I stared at him as he stood uncovered, more vulnerable and more self-possessed than I had ever seen him. He was 23 years old at the time, younger than I am now, but he was a father who was raising children. I can barely care for myself at 41, employed and relatively well-paid and cannot imagine all the tools he needed and lacked to properly care for my siblings and me. Get all the way in the water. Stop being scared. You're going to learn to clean your whole body, especially behind your ears and under your balls. He instructed me firmly, but with care and amusement as we squeezed our bodies into the bathtub. When we sat down, he moved his hand over mine. Together, we grabbed the soapy wash rag and moved it across my neck behind my ears, along my arms, and across my chest. My father gently washed my back as he instructed me on how best to clean the parts to smell the worst when boys play outside all day. My fear of the bath dissipated more and more after each repetition of calm instruction, offered amid safety in the presence of my father, who in other instances used the same hands to do damage. There was a lesson to be learned in the water. Bathing correctly was one lesson, but I also learned how tenderness and violence care and harm are strange bedfellows. They can coexist in our complex web of human connection, the bad always canceling out the good until the good that we are able to express smudges away the traces of evil even the best of us are prone to meet out. Looking back, I no longer see a young black father who was the totality of recklessness and lovelessness. I see a human being, a young black man struggling to transform what he otherwise uses weapons into instruments of care. His hands, his strong and soft hands, were the source of contradiction in my youthful mind. His hands, his human and fragile hands used gently and violently, now symbolize the complexity I too carry within and negotiate as an adult. In the water, we received instruction. Thank you. Um, You know, like, how vulnerable. Such a vulnerable moment, such a vulnerable portrait of your dad. whether in real time, you know, he understood exactly what was on the table emotionally. When you read it out loud, I think we, it's clear how, um, and you, you bring up care, the theme of care. 
um, in that in that excerpt. And you know, when someone is, you think of all the many fires that Black people are negotiating daily um, from white supremacy, kind of hegemony, uh, capitalism, et cetera, poverty. Um, and you think about how rare we have an opportunity to actually be vulnerable, just show up kind of in our naked self. Mm. Um, and how rare it is that when we do, we receive the care that allows us to be convinced to do it again. Um, Thinking of just not even that specific moment, but are there other parts in the book, other memories you return to where you realize there was a yearning for care when you wanted to be vulnerable? Yeah. Um, My mama. I love my mama, y'all. Like, that's like my homegirl. That's like my bestie. Um... And in so many ways, this, uh, so when I, when I needed, at 28, I was on, at the point where I was either going to take myself out of here, and I mean that, like, um, and I had tried, you know, um, to take myself out of here, or I was going to fully embrace who I understood myself to be. So part of doing that was... Um, having to have a conversation with my mom about my sexual identity, wh- about the way I love and move in the world. Part of it had to do with my partner at the time, who pretty much said, like, if your mama call here one more time and think I'm your roommate, <laughs> she going to get a whole, <laughs> she going to get all the business. So you better tell her before I do. Um, it was, a, a, of course, my roommate was a dude. His name is Shane. God bless Shane for, for, for pushing me to be courageous. Um, but you know, I called my mom and I said, Mom, I need to talk to you. I actually sent her a text message on this old flip phone. And you see, you know, when you send a text, you see the line going across. And I was like, shit, I hope that line don't make it. And it did. And she texted me back and said, I'm coming to your job. We're going to talk. And my mom comes up to my job. And we're sitting in my office. She's like, what's wrong? And I said, oh, my God, I got to talk to you. And I wasn't looking at her in her face. And she said, well, what's the problem? Like, are you sick? And I said, no, I'm not sick. My grandfather had re- passed about three years before um, from cancer. Uh, with Very suddenly, she said, well, do you have cancer? And I said, no. Uh, she said, do you have HIV, AIDS? And I said, no. I said, I have a boyfriend. And she said, oh, I knew that already. <laughs> so it was so funny. And I was like, what? She's like, oh, I knew that for a long time. She's like, you are my son. And I know you. And I love you, and I was just waiting for you to be strong enough and open enough to come and talk to me about it. And um, I was like, what? First, I was taken aback a little bit, because I'm like, so you were going to just make me wait this out? She's like, well, I didn't know how to say it to you. She's like, but you know, I knew this the whole time. Your sister did, too. She did say, she's like, if you, if you want to tell everybody, you can, but you should definitely tell your sister, because they've been talking about this for years, and they'll probably really love to hear you tell <laughs> So I tell my sister, my sister's like, yeah, because we found your letters when you were like 14. We were just waiting for you to say something, bro. Um, that moment when my mother looked me in the face and said, I love you. And, and my mom, like, and so we're clear, my family got to the church because of me. Like I was ministering in a church and it was a high, I was like a high roller, like, you know, preaching and everything. And when she was able to say to me, I don't, if your church, if the church cannot even accept you and love you, you don't need to be there. My mom said this. I swear to you, that day was the moment that I decided to live. Every weight 
that I had been carrying like fell off. I, I was gonna get like I told I was like I want to get a shirt to say I'm gay as hell and I'm happy about it. I don't give a fuck. Who cares? Um, and it had to do with her. I, I, that story is important for me because when we think so many times about black people, black people who are churched or have a particular faith system, black people from the so-called hood, young black mamas like mine who had me at 16 who didn't get her diploma till she's 50, we don't typically think that that black woman is going to be the one sitting in front of her son saying, I love you, and nobody, and I bet not say nothing to you other than that what's good. It was important for me to tell that story because it was that woman from Camden, New Jersey, who had her child at 16, who doesn't have all the language, who's not talking about intersectionality. She don't call herself a black feminist, but she performs the type of radical black love that so many people think our people cannot perform. I'm alive because of her. So, you know, these types of moments is sort of what I try to to capture in the book. Yeah, it's about the realities of what it means to grow up in the age of AIDS, to grow up in the age of hip-hop, to grow up as a black boy, trying to become a man in a society that teaches us that manhood ought to look a certain type of way, that it ought to be sexist, misogynist, and so so many other things. Um, And how to do that in a way that's freeing and magical, um, to grow up in in an urban space, in, in an era of like neoliberal politics, it's about all of that, but it's also about family and about care and about love, about what, it happened, what can happen in our lives when we love the hell of ourselves and out of each other as black folk. Um, and that's what I try to get in the books. And how one, one act of courage, you know, you send in that text, in that flip phone, and there's a lot of, you know, that's, that takes a lot of commitment, right? This is not an iPhone. We can't swipe. You had it every letter. You know, you knew what you were doing. And that act of courage, I think... Uh, it signals how much of a ricochet effect it can have, right? Like, I'm interested now to know what that moment, what, what happened after that moment in terms of your relationship, not just with your mom, your sisters, how you move through the world, your professional life. Like, how much can be freed mm. when you decide, right? You know, once that decision is made and you commit to it, what does that other side look like? And I'll say this very quickly, because I also just would love to have conversation with y'all. But, like, I, I had made a decision that I love my mom. Y'all know how much I, you hear me talking about it. But I also said, at this point in my life, if I'm going to love myself, I have to take myself seriously enough to let anyone know that if they're going to be in my life, if I'm inviting them in, I don't say coming out. I say inviting in. If I'm inviting you in my life, if you're going to be here, you're going to have to accept me as I am. And I was willing to, to go back, should she say, I can't deal with this? I was willing to say, okay, I love you, but you catch up when you, when you learn to love me. Um, great, you know, by grace, she, was, she, she showed up um, affirming who I was, but that's the courage that I think. I was, you know, I had gotten to a point where I was ready to cut my losses for the sense of gaining self. But what it also means, you know, we don't invite people in or some people say come out like one time. Those are negotiations you do every damn day. You know, you're expected. You walk into places. And, and I, the reason why I don't say coming out is because coming out is never for the person with who's being asked to sort of disclose or name themselves or something. It's always about it's for the comfort of the person that's asking or the comfort of a society that demands of us to name ourselves as anything. Like what the who the hell what the hell you need to know what I love or how I love like straight people don't got to come I'm out going, of nothing out <laughs> you know what I'm saying so like I invite you in this is my life this is my house when people come and knock on your door you don't just let any old raggedy person in 
You let people in that you feel safe with, that you love. It is an invitation and an act of hospitality for you to even get invited into the space of my life. And the only way we can ever think about ourselves in that way is we love the hell out of ourselves enough to hold people to account to that. So I don't walk into spaces now and be like, oh, and by the way, I'm gay or I'm queer. N- I don't have to do that. You understand? I don't have to, to, to do that for the sake of somebody who needs to know um, or, or needs to feel comfortable by virtue of my disclosure. Um, I invite, you know, anyway, I can go on and on at that rant. But what it meant is, I don't know, it changed me. I left my church. Even though I was still in seminary, I was like the most rebellious seminarian student in that entire program. But I'm like, I am no longer giving you my money, my praise, my time, my efforts. I done wrote your curriculum for Bible study. I done sang in your pulpits. I done preached in your pulpits. And you still going to look at me as if I'm going to hell? Give me all my stuff back that I done gave you. You said, I'm going to take that to hell with me, okay? Then my last check. Then my last check. Anyway, I got suspended from ministerial service because I wasn't paying tithes. And I'm like, well, that's a whole other story. Don't even get me started. That is to say, I'm so grateful, yeah, that I left those spaces and the heaviness of, of that sort of space in my life because I was living for everybody else and never for myself. And I was telling, I was on a fast route to death, seriously. And I think about so many, and this is what moves me. I, I wrote this for the 16-year-old me because I think about so many, of our young, you should not be 12 like I was, or 14, or 16, or 28, trying to think about how to get yourself out of this world. Taking pills, sitting in the back of a car, because somebody done preached too many times that you're going to hell. I'm sitting in the back of a car thinking about how I'm going to throw myself into the midst of traffic. What? And still getting A's on my report card. And still walking around with a smile on my face so that no one can even discern, really, all that you're going through in your life. And I wanted to write a book that a 16-year-old me, somebody who needed somebody else to let them know that you have a right to fucking exist. You have a right to be here. You have a right to be all that you are. And you have a right to do that freely with as much love as possible. And a right to imagine what can be possible. You know, there's a lot of times in the book where you talk about the safety of the imagination. You know, the when you, outside of the situation with the, the friends and the gasoline, not friends, the boys, the neighborhood boys and the gasoline, um, taunting at school, that you found solace in your imagination, you know, imagining another place. Yeah. Um, it was always coupled with this kind of like, you know, um, it seems like receding line of, you know, near death. But there were moments, shimmers of just kind of like spinning in magic. Right, you know, before the hashtag Black Girl Magic or Black Boy Magic, you know, but thinking of what is possible, yeah. despite what Camden might, you know, be trying to signal to me, and I um, think about then the similarities between Camden and Baltimore, mm. and how you know, young queer boys, fourteen, thirteen, you know, young women who identify as lesbian, queer, however they identify, that coupled with negotiating all of the systems of violence, all of the fires that mm. are particular to a Baltimore, to a Camden, when then can one imagine what can be, right? So yeah. what, what would you say to someone, a kid, a parent, who for themselves they're trying to, you know, return to the power of imagination, you know, um, dreaming beyond? So part of it is, you know, we have a responsibility to, to care for our young people, And a big part of the work I did was precisely around working with uh, young LGBT folk of color 
in Newark and in New York City. Um, I was working to develop a school in Newark, New Jersey, um, that would have been named after Sakia Gunn, who was a 15-year-old black teenager, a lesbian-identified girl who was stabbed to death by a 28-year-old man who was trying to holler at her while she was coming back home with her friends, and he, she rejected him, and he killed her in front of her friends. Um, I was in a school district as an administrator running a research office, having to talk to principals who blotted kids' faces out of the yearbook if they saw two girls kissing. Or security guards who allowed kids to jump kids who might appear to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Um, so it is so important to me. Um, and I also stood in rooms with folk who would normally, in any other circumstance, be all about black power, especially in Newark. You know how they, you know, this is home of Mayor Baraka. And, and you know, folk love black radical politics in Newark, but it's always myopic. It's always myopic. My politics stops at a certain point. Let a black woman get killed by a black man. My politics, I'm not, I'm, you know, I don't got the Black Lives Matter sign up no more. Or say to some of these folk, oh, actually the mattering of black lives also has something to do with the mattering of every black life, women and girls, whether they're cisgender or transgender, these queer young people that you don't want to celebrate. I actually have folks say to me, this is distracting us from the work of racial justice. To say, to get us to think about trans women's murder is to take us away from the work of protecting us from law enforcement. Go on, Aubrey, as if these things are not connected. So, you know, a couple things that I am now interested in, in terms of like what it is that we can do and how we might imagine a black, loving, and liberatory world can only be built when we don't do to each other what the system does to us. So many of us have so sharp around analyzing whose necks are on our feet. We can talk about racism all day. I can give you a clear talk about what, what racial supremacy looked like. But I always say the real radical work is being able to analyze whose neck your feet are on. Yes, right? Okay. Yeah. And not only recognizing whose necks your feet are on, but what you need to do to take them off. All of us can at once be the oppressed and the oppressor. And I believe then that if we're going to build a world and communities that don't look like the ones that we're in now, we cannot take the old tool, we can't use these, as Audre Lorde would say, the master's tools to build the master, like the, we, we, gotta use, we gotta do something different. And it's our responsibility to do so. I can tell a young person all day to dream, to dream the world you wanna be in. But I also write in a book that dreams, if only consigned to the imagination, die. If we don't give young people the tools they need to build their dreams, then what the hell is the point in dreaming? So, I'll, yeah, should we open up for questions? I went to Super Bowl in February. Uh, we were originally invited to the big house down in Washington, D.C. for celebrations. It's always a custom. And then they, the house master decided they didn't count out to the way that he wanted them to salute the flag and told them to go away. And a lot of the players, and I'm also hurt as well, and a lot of us are hurt with that type of expression. 
what's, what can we make out of this? Because really, the big problem is not just in our neighborhoods, but it's across the country. It's a divided country. So where do we start on that level? Uh, regardless of whether we're fans or any sports or not. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a big question. <laughs> um, where do we start? I, I, part of what I was trying to allude to in the last comment I made is a need to ask ourselves how each of us participates every day. And um, let me rephrase this. It's easy, I think, to point at the big obvious monsters like Trump, right? And say, you know, Trump is like an obvious white racial supremacist, misogynist, ableist, dot, dot, dot. It's harder to ask ourselves, how to might I be participating in any of those things? And so many of us let ourselves off the hook a lot. And it's easy to let let ourselves off the hook when you have obvious monsters that we can say, as long as I'm not Trump, then I'm okay. As long as I'm not the brother that had, you know, that sexually assaulted some woman, then me too, you know, me too ain't really about critiquing me. Part of what I believe the work is for all of us at this moment is to say, okay, let me take an assessment of self. Let me think about what I may participate in with my awareness or not in the everydayness of my life that might make someone else's life um, much more joyous, much more free. Because I, I actually, I'm going to say something that may, um, may piss a lot of people off, but you do realize that every one of us in here, if we did a self-assessment, if we evaluated self, we would find that our feet are on somebody's neck. You know that? You know that's true. Even if you don't agree with me, I'm going to tell you it is. And part of what we need to do is the work of self-evaluative analysis. That sounds fancy. Really like looking in your heart's mirror, in your spirit's mirror, and saying, okay, you know, what am I doing in my everyday life that are contributing to the, to the worst of what can be happening in this country? And then how do I stop it? Uh-huh. I can give an example of it. So, for instance, let me start with myself. I always like to practice with myself. Um, you know, I can go to the Me Too march, and I could be at a Me Too. So, Me Too movement, you all heard of the Me Too movement? Um, Tarana Burke coined this term right 10 years ago. Tarana Burke is a black woman from Alabama that was really calling to, to account um, sexual assault and giving space for people who had... And I'm sorry, and I should also, when we have conversations like this, be mindful of how we're having conversations when some of this stuff can impact some of us in the room, and some of us have been impacted by sexual assault in the room. That said, it was about giving space to name the ways that sexual assault has wreaked havoc in people's lives, a calling into account, also a way to challenge a range of folk, especially men, to own our complicity in sexual violence, in rape, and so much else. I can easily, because say I'm the editor, an editor, co-managing editor of the Feminist Wire, or because I've read feminist literature like Audre Lorde, or because I talk a good talk, I could easily act like that critique is not also about me. Does this make sense? But when I sit down and go, wait a minute, just by virtue of me being viewed and interpreted as a man when I walk into certain buildings, I know that the likelihood that I might get hired or heard before a, a person who is understood or interpreted as a woman is, is high. I know that when I walk home from my subway station in Brooklyn to my house, I am more likely to get home safe 
without being um, catcalled, without being, you know, touched inappropriately than someone who might be understood or interpreted as femme or as a woman. Um, that means I can't let myself off the hook and act like I'm just a good one in the bunch. Like when I'm in a barbershop, that if I'm quiet, when someone is in there saying something awful about a woman walking by, because this has happened, I'm sitting in a chair and all they're talking about is a woman body parts. Even in my silence, I am participating in the violence that's happening. Does this make sense? Or when I go to Black Lives Matters marches and everybody got their fists up in the air and their big Black Lives Matter signs, right? Um, and some of us in that space, even with all the Black Lives Matter sign, may still say things like, you know, trans folks shouldn't be here. Transgender folk ain't part of this. If I'm silent around that and if I don't make space for trans folk to be there, then I too am complicit. Um, and I, I can go on and on and on with the ways that we, these things happen in our everyday lives. It happens when we're silent and when things happen in front of us. A lot of things are said in front, especially people, people say the most when they're comfortable with us. Those dinner table conversations in our family homes, that's when you see the most racism happen. It's when you see the most type of uh, antagonism happening towards queer and trans folk. It's typically around people that we know who believe that they can say those things around us, and just because we are not the ones saying it, are doing the actions, if we're silent in the face of that, we too are complicit. Question here and in there? Cool. Okay. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of the work you did for this book and in our talk is you've, you've done a lot of introspection and sort of done, and done that work. So when did that work begin for, when did that work begin for you, sort of what spurred that sort of process of introspection for you? I, I would love to say, oh, this started years ago. Um, no, I, I think um, I, I've learned from black women feminist writers a lot. Some of my favorite writers are Audre Lorde and June Jordan. Um, you know, like... Cheryl Clark, who is a mentor of mine. Um, and if you don't know these names, it's worth looking some of these folk up because they're pretty remarkable thinkers, poets, philosophers, Jackie Alexander. And I actually have relationships with some of these folk. And it's through the, the Kambahi River Collective and Barbara Smith, who people I got to spend time with and learn from. Their works has taught me so much, not just about the beauty of art and black literature, but also about what it means to think deeply about living out the politics and ideas that we espouse, how to practice what we one preach. Um, and I've been challenged, maybe, you know, like beginning in like my late 20s, I sort of went on this journey to, to discover. And when writing this book, part of what I didn't want to do was to act like I am somehow only to be figured as a victim only bad shit happened to me. Like, I ain't responsible for nothing. Um, I didn't want to do that. And that's, you know, some memoirs, you can do that. You can, you know, I'm going to write myself in here as a hero. Everybody, what was me? Um, yeah, there are some woes, but there's also some moments where I had to hold myself accountable, too. And that is, and, and that is healing work. It, it healed me to be able to look in the mirror and see a full self with the good and bad and to love that self that was looking bad.
Thank you. And, I, and something about the, I, I, you brought up something I think is really important. I wrote about that bathtub moment with my dad because we don't think about two black boys, really, two black, a man and his child, or two black men or boys, however we want to imagine it. Um, intimacy, is some, intimacy is something that is, at, is so missing from how we understand black boy men's relations. To even imagine two black boys in a bathtub often does two things for each for people. Either raises this concern, like I had people say to me, like when I was reading this, my heart started fluttering because I wasn't sure if this was going to be a story about sexual violence or queerness. <laughs> As it, but do you see how flattening that is? What that does to a human person who might be identified as a man to not give them the capacity or to, to imagine them as having a capacity to do something like touch. Like, that's so awful. We're humans. And I try to, a lot in the book, give examples of things that you could not call, you might think that they are quote-unquote queer or gay, like me laying in a bed with a friend of mine at like in high school. We laid in the same bed every, t- every night almost and held each other. We never had sex. We didn't call that gay. He doesn't even identify as gay. But see how in our imaginations there is somehow a refusal to even give space to black boys and black men to experience that type of closeness, which is why it's so awkward. You ever try to go, like, I'm talking to the folk who identify as black boys and men in the room, like, you ever try to go hug somebody like a stranger? Like, what is that about? Like, do you know that as an assault to our, to our personhood? Do you know what it means to be disallowed to feel, to touch? And then we want to know why it is that love is something like I often say when you are nurtured under the conditions of lovelessness, go out and then try to ask for the thing that's been denied you so long and watch what happened. Go out and try to give it. Go out and try to receive it. And, and I, I want to be clear here that patriarchy and sexism has a role in this. Our, as, do, as men, our role in perpetuating it, but I, I, you know, I, I grew up also with sisters and, and women who'd be like, you know, I want that hard dude. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking Don't be looking at me like I'm making this up. Like, I don't want my dude soft. You know, if I'm, I'm attracted to them hard. You know, and I'm like, even that language creates, <laughs> p- puts us in a position to perform the very thing that does us harm, inevitably. And what I want is for black people who identify as men and boys to be so free that I can be seen as uh, soft if I want it to be, flowery, strong. How the, I was with, I'm, I cuss a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really good today, though, because <laughs> I'm, I'm in a guest city. 
But however we want to be and to still be seen as human, not aberration, not as worthy of being taken down by gasoline, our fist, our word. And the moment that can happen, I think so many of us will be free. I love that my dad felt strong, strong enough in his personhood to get in a bathtub with me and teach me how to wash. It's such a beautiful moment. And I'm so happy I can say that out loud and not give a shit about how that's to be interpreted. That's what I want for us. Hi. Um, congrats on your book. And, Thank you. and I'm just really enjoying um, this conversation so far. I wanted to ask, first of all, could you repeat that statement you said when you've been nurtured <laughs> in a... <laughs> but when you've been nurtured under conditions of lovelessness. I don't know the rest of that said. Okay, that, that's what I was looking for because it was so impactful for me. And you also shared that... Um, a lot of men, whether they're straight or queer or, or uh, I'm not sure the correct term, cisgender, but, you know, I think of that because um, I have a lot of um, straight or um, men who are as friends, you know, yeah. as platonic friends, as much as that word. And it's interesting because um, my... Female friends find that so strange <laughs> that I have these great relationships with my male friends. And I'm, you know, I'm heterosexual, but we just have a very loving friendship that does not include anything sexual. And I, with my male friends who are straight, they really, um, you know, I tell my, girl, my female friends, like, I, they treat me so well. <laughs> and they are so grateful because I am the woman they can hug and cry to and and be weak and not be whatever masculine is and and they um, reward me with such um, warmth and love and caring that it actually makes me as a woman um, a better person and certainly um, has changed my expectation of uh, or my communication with men who I am romantically interested in because now I, I have seen that other side and I, I applaud it and I enjoy it and I don't feel that I don't put that pressure on men to be whatever that, particularly black men, that mm. masculine thing is that most of them don't, most of my male friends who are straight don't necessarily have. Mm. So I when you made that statement, it just really resonated with me because we don't just love each other without, just love the person as they are without these definitions of yeah. whether it be masculinity or femininity. And, and we're almost afraid to just love. So thank you for saying that. It just really resonated with Excellent. me. Thank you. Thank you for your reflection. Um, and, and part of that came from me thinking about my father the line that I wrote was, how could he ask for the thing that had been denied him so long? Um, and then it made me think about my own relationships and my intimate relationships, my relationships to folk, to people in general. And um, so many times I felt as if love was something to be withheld from me. 
that intimacy and care, um, are, you know, was it sort of had been denied, and and I, I here's where I am now in my thinking. You know, I, I, so what what would it mean? We we're often asking folk like, what it might it mean to be better men, or to to reimagine masculinity. But I'm I'm now thinking like, I don't want to raise my nephews to be better men are to be better masculine boys. I want to raise them to be better human beings. Because these boxes is what screwed us up, right? Like, all my life, I have worked so hard to become the boy and the man. First of all, black boys don't get to be children. Black girls don't get to be children. We don't have childhoods anyway. You know, that's why you can be a 12-year-old playing in, in a park um, and be read by and be interpreted by police as being a full-on adult that's worthy of doing death, and they shoot you to death like Tamir Rice. They don't see black kids as children. They see us as adults. Some scholars call it accelerated childhoods. That's why when you have a 12-year-old, before you even tell them to be a child, you say, you know, you're rushing them to be... You, you are, you're about to be a black man. You ever, I heard that growing up. I'm like, what the hell? I'm still playing with He-Man toys. Like, can I still play with my He-Man toys? Like, I see white kids having fun. They're playing on the damn, like, they're in the soccer field. You asking me to be a, can I play with Shira? Like, give me an opportunity to be a kid. Right? So, just, this is what white supremacy does. Like, we don't get to, and I get that, because our history was such that when the white kids was playing, our kids were doing what? On the damn fields. So I get the history of, and I get the traumatic traces of the type of sla- a chattel slavery mentality through white, su- white racial supremacy that refuses to see our kids as goddamn kids. I understand that. Which means we got to take on a role of ensuring that our kids can be that and to dream. I should not have had to be thinking about these sort of ideas of what black, how can I be like the type of black boy that's acceptable? What's a real, a real black man? And my becoming a real black man, how, it, took me, it did not allow me to be a human being fully. It is what made me hard. It's what made me treat women like shit. It's the very thing that did not allow me to do things like say to another person, another brother in public that I love them. The things that had me not being vulnerable when I was hurt. The things that made me not want to cry or when I'm in a barbershop to act tough, or when I'm walking down the street to act mad cool. It's the thing that did not allow me to do, you know, like to dance when I wanted to dance, to do ballet when I really wanted to do ballet or sing. Like, and I just want us to be free. (laughs) And to realize that cages were never meant to be doorways. What do I mean by cages? These identity categories. These things that we ain't really create, this comes, these are colonial vestiges in the first place. This stuff ain't working for us. So why are we trying to fit ourselves and our kids and our loved ones and our, uh, and our folk into cages? Cages are not entrances into freedom. And so much of this is, right? And this book is a wrestling with that. It's my wrestling with that. Um, and, and, and inevitably, like, I want my nieces and nephews, my young folk in my life, to, to not have to do all that negotiating and a limiting of their personhoods 
for the sake of everybody else's comfort. I just want them to be free. Daryl was I thought y'all was going to let me sneak out right after that one right there. I I speak loud, Darnell. Thank you. Um, Even though you left organized religion, that was a major part of your story. Um, Does, for lack of a better word, spirituality or that dimension, how do you understand yourself and your work and your life? How does that enter into... Yes. Who you are and who you've become. That's such a great question. I am, while I'm not a part of an institutionalized church, I mean, I still understand the work that I do as ministry. Um, It's service in that way. But essentially, you know, I have a really, um, I'm spiritual (laughs) while I'm not religious. But the way that I wrestle with spirituality in this in the book is um, what I call, you know, radical love. You know, I, I so let me just make some disclaimers. You know, I I do borrow from um, sort of African traditional religions and spiritual beliefs. Um, the presence of our ancestors are are is, is has been and has been a force that has guided me. Um, I do conceive of spirit, um, not as a force that is here as judge and warden, but as a force of connectivity. So, for instance, the way that I define love is as a force that separates and, and removes the distance that exists between me and the other. That is, whatever that gap is, whatever that sort of gaping space is that might otherwise keep us apart, love our spirit, which is present in all of us, is what can remove that space. Um, I still, you know, I, when I'm asked to preach, so institutional stuff, when I'm asked to preach, I still go to people. <laughs> I will preach in the pulpit. I just warn them that my take on the gospel is quite different than theirs might traditionally be. Um, I read the gospel as um, a, a text uh, that is a, a radical one. Christ's death on a cross isn't as much as it was about a crucifixion of the God, the Christhead, right, um, for just the sake of a particular type of good. It was a state execution. The empire was the, 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 the culprit that killed the Christ. When you understand the text in that way, and this comes from black liberation theology, um, you know, womanist theology, James Cone, may he rest in peace, talks about the cross and the lynching tree as a way for us to think about the connections between the cross and the lynching tree and empire and white nationalism and white supremacy and so much else. So I inter- you know, my gospel reading <laughs> is very much influenced by liberation theology, theologians, black, um, black liberation theologians, womanist theologies, and I certainly interpret it that way. Um, at the end of the book, I talk about the movement for black lives and the spiritual undercurrent of that movement, which was missed by a lot of folk. But it is spirituality is the crux of black, black life. And I'm not talking about Christianities. I'm talking about the, the, the presence of spirit. That Atlantic Ocean, you talked about the water. <laughs> it's a place to meditate because our ancestors 
had been moved across this gap, this gaping expanse, right? Yes, we should acknowledge the water as a site of spiritual presence, especially when some of our folk leapt to death for their freedom in those in those waters. So, uh, you know, um, spirituality is present. I'm, I'm not going to let Hashim off the hook, too, because Hashim, <laughs> Hashim was in seminary, too. Well, I think, I mean, it's important to note that, I mean, to your point, I think the implicit point of your question or um, what comes to mind when, when I heard you raise your question is I think there's a particular um, relationship with Christianity, sexuality, and then the, the protection of masculinity, right? I mean, one of the, I remember there was like the longest debate in my Old Testament class referring to God as he. And where the history of determining and deciding that God is actually a man. Um, and then what it means then that God gave, if Jesus is God's son and Mary, you know, how then can a man give, you know, produce um, re- with reproductive function? You know, what does that do to masculine, the notion of masculinity? But I think there are many moments in the text, right, where you are trying to push as far as possible, like this kind of salvific function of Christianity, right? You know, like, rescue me from these internal demons. And I think, you know, we can play into that kind of narrative around, you know, Christians are the most homophobic, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, which I don't think is a point here. I think it's about, you know, expanding our notion of spirituality and what um, a radical love might be able to do to understand, reimagine, you know, that it's not about being masculine or being, you know, masculine within the context of Christianity, but it's about being more loving, right? Being a more loving human being. And, you know, I think when people return to King's kind of quotes and later excerpts, you see this more expanded version of what a beloved community means and how that actually is, you know, a call to, you know, in, in conversation with God is actually charging us to do. So like, I think we we would do a disservice to, you know, scoop past the fact that a lot of the really, I think, charged moments, I'd be interested to hear from you, like the moments when you were contemplating suicide because of, you know, the rumblings of queer sexuality inside of you. What role was, you know, your understanding of like the morality, how immoral, right? Because there are certain people, certain identities that for whatever reason are made to believe they aren't worthy of love, right? They're not worthy of the type of vulnerability that then is reciprocated with love um, or care. Um, and that often are people in, around the margins, right? LGBT folk, um, black folk, people of color, et cetera. So, um, yeah. Yep. Um, I'm, yes, we're, we're done. But I'll say... <laughs> Out to, to answer the. Let's follow up with this question, this last question. Okay. What would be your, this is a good way to just opinion it. What would be your, your take, the, a takeaway take away? you want your reader to have? Oh my gosh. As they um, finish your book. That's a hard question. Um, but it's a good one. Um, no spoilers. I, I inevitably preach about in this book, I think, um, the importance of what I call radical black love. 
And I end by reflecting on the fact that I come from a family that regardless of what you did, they, they did not dispose of one another. Like I come from a family, if you did them wrong a week before and you were houseless without a home the next week, you can come in and sleep on the couch, sleep on the floor, but we're not going to let you be out there on your own without food. And inevitably, I believe that is at heart, at the heart of what a black radical politic is. Like the love that I saw in my family um, sort of re, uh, reenact and the love I see in the movement now. So what do I want people to take away is to um, think about what that practice might look like in our lives, what it might mean to not dispose of those whom the world has, a, who takes on that sort of onus of disposing of every damn day, and how do we not do that? Um, thank you all for being gracious enough to listen and for having us here. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.